Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv. And I'm Shivani, and we are very excited to have Leslie Jameson joining us here today. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie is a novelist and essayist known for her novel The Gin Closet and a widely acclaimed collection of essays, The Empathy Exams. Her work has also appeared in Harper's Oxford American, A Public Space, Virginia Quarterly Review, and The Believer. Leslie was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in L.A., and has since lived in Iowa, Nicaragua, New Haven, and New York. She's worked as a baker, an office temp, an innkeeper, a tutor, and a medical actor, and she is now a columnist for the New York Times Book Review and an assistant professor at Columbia University. Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. Um, One of the first questions we like to ask our guests is about something we call inflection points, uh, which are basically points in your life where mm. you've had to pivot or adjust in mm. your personal life or in your uh, professional life. Mm. Um, just a point that really defined uh, your trajectory. Uh, could you share a moment with us? Yeah, first of all, that's a really <laughs> great, great question. And one, one that I'm going to keep in mind because I feel like sometimes when I interview people, it's great to have those things that can kind of draw out Absolutely. a way that somebody hasn't necessarily thought about their life before. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that was a, a period of time when I was living in New York City. I was 23 years old. I had gone to the Ira Writers Workshop to get my MFA. Mm-hmm. I was determined to be a writer. But I had this idea that part of what it meant to be a writer was living in New York City because that's <laughs> the quintessential be, experience. Yeah, that yeah. seemed to be where the writing came from, and <laughs> and it was where a lot of people who were important to me were living. But the thing that I discovered, so I moved there when I was twenty three, and the thing that I discovered very quickly was that um, New York City is is all about um, money in this very important way, and especially all about figuring out how to pay your rent. Um, and so I was living with a very 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 dear friend, and I loved our home, but I was working these jobs that I kind of despised um in order to just like keep up with the rat race of Mm -hmm. new york Mm -hmm. existence so i worked as a personal assistant for this kind of high-powered journalist who was um it was in a way like the most instructive two months of my life but also (laughs) very difficult Mm -hmm. two months she was a very difficult person um and then i worked as a an attempt for a large bank which was soul-sucking in a slightly different way um I mean a great experience too because Absolutely. so many people show up to work and it's a blessing to actually love what you do and most of the time that's not the case right. um so I was sort of in this cubicle from eight to six every day and I realized the I realized that if I just kept pursuing the life courses that seemed most uh present or visible Mm -hmm. that the writing wasn't going to happen that Mm -hmm. I was going to have to do something like make a more radical change in order to make space for the writing that I couldn't just wake up an hour early or um you know try to get home exhausted and spend two hours working on a novel at night that it it, that if I wanted the writing to be the center I was going to have to make some kind of big shift Mm -hmm. um so I ended up quitting my both jobs in New York and moving back actually to Southern California where um I lived with my grandmother and took I was still working but I was working different kinds of jobs and trying to live in a much more uh thrifty way so that was when I worked as an innkeeper and a tutor and just crafted a very differently shaped life where Mm -hmm. I had a little bit more freedom with my time where I was like keeping a lower overhead cost and where I could really try to say 
the writing is going to be at the center and I'm going to arrange things around that. But it did feel like a very active pushing back against the flow in order to make this thing central that I felt really passionately right. committed to. And it sounds like a, a common thread by the uh, the jobs that you sort of you know adopted when you went to South, Southern California. There, there seems to be much more narratives involved with it, much more personal interaction, much yeah. more personal engagement. Yeah. Do you think that was something that yeah. you know, helped you better kind of focus yourself on the on the storytelling objective? Yeah, it's a really, it's another really interesting question. I think, I mean, the two main kinds of jobs I've had in my life are um, teaching and hospitality or service work. Right. And um, the hospitality and service work jobs, things like working as an innkeeper, mm -hmm. where I also worked for two years as a baker, um, I've worked in variety of retail context my <laughs> first big job was at Jamba Juice oh. um, so there was so and I feel like all of those do in in a way they're the opposite of writing they're they're very based on human interaction right. rather than the kind of like isolation of you and your computer um, they often involve discrete tasks that you can actually finish rather mm -hmm. than writing especially writing something like a novel or a book that can feel endless, right. like it's going to take you years to cross it off your to-do list. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're working in a bakery kitchen with a production list or in a, you know, in my hotel job with my, I got to cross things off the list, like Absolutely. all the time. And there was a kind of satisfaction and completing tasks right. that I didn't get in my creative life. Um, but to your point, I think there was also this sense of being in, getting into contact with the lives of strangers, mm -hmm. especially when I was working as an innkeeper, because it would just be these glimpses. I'm sure. But they were often really fascinating <laughs> glimpses. Um, both, I mean, in Los Angeles, because there are very few B&Bs, the people who stayed in this B&B were often people who wanted to have some kind of interaction with yeah, you or yeah. wanted to share about their day when they came home. And so there was definitely a sense of connecting with people and just getting the littlest soil sample of where they were at. Like yeah. the, maybe the marriage seemed a little tense or maybe they were on their honeymoon or people were in all sorts of different places. But I, of course the novelist in me was like spinning all these tales. Sure. Yeah. That's incredible inspiration. Now uh, you're here at CMC to speak about in short, kind of the difference between being a detached writer and being more personally connected to a story and in a piece in The Atlantic uh, you wrote called Enough About Me, you write, Life is not personal. Life is evidence. It's fodder for argument. To put the I to work this way invites a different intimacy, not voyeuristic communion, but collaborative inquiry. Author and reader facing the same questions from inside their inevitably messy lives. Could you speak more to that? Yeah. Um, so one thing to say about my writing practice um, is that it's gone through a few different permutations, which kind of gets back to that question about inflection points. Right. Um, but I started out as a fiction writer. My first book, as you mentioned, was a novel. Um, and at a certain point, I made a turn towards nonfiction. Um, and initially, that involved a fair amount of personal writing, writing that was drawn from my own experience. Um, but it also, over the years, started to involve seeking the experiences and the lives of others mm -hmm. because I didn't want my work to feel cloistered by the boundaries of what I had lived in the same way that fiction doesn't, I believe, have to be cloistered by mm -hmm. reckoning with just what you've lived or Absolutely. just what you've experienced. Um, so in order to make my nonfiction broader, more multiple in those ways, I had to kind of um, diversify my arsenal of tactics. So start bringing in things like research, archival research, interviewing, reporting, going on journeys. Um, 
So I became quite interested in this idea of how a personal narrative voice on the page could be not just engaging with my own experience, but engaging with the lives of others. So part of what I want to talk about today, what I'm going to talk about today is this idea of how um, you can write about the lives of others, but also make your own subjective presence right. very felt rather than feeling an imperative that I think some people can attach to journalism that you sort of have to disappear yourself or become a more neutral or objective observer, which I think objectivity <laughs> is, is pretty impossible and that we can do some damage when we forget that. But um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm interested in both um, what we call personal writing and the ways in which the boundaries between personal writing and writing about others aren't so absolute as we right. sometimes uh, think they are. And that, that's kind of extended. Um, you, you've spoken uh, to the relationship between a writer and, and their readers uh, to yeah. quite some depth um, about how it's it's really, even when, when you're using the word empathy, uh, there, and it, although you might go in, go in thinking there's, a, there's not a finite amount there, you really struggle with that. Uh, in terms of you're opening yourself up, but it, it's also that there comes a certain point where you have to put those boundaries to it. Um, can you speak to the, that kind of evolution? Because that sounds like a nearly impossible thing to grapple with, which is how much of myself am I giving to someone? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, there are so many levels to address that question on. Um, one is to say, um, even though I didn't go into my collection of essays thinking either that I was going to write a collection of essays right. that sort of emerged organically as a series of pieces, and then I started to think about what would happen if I connected them. Um, but I also didn't think, it wasn't like I went into it where it's like, I'm going to write a book about empathy. Like, what do I need to do to write that book? It was more that I started to see the question of empathy emerging as this kind of subterranean tunnel between all of these subjects mm -hmm. that I felt myself drawn towards. And part of what became clear to me about empathy was like the longer I thought about this concept of empathy, in a way, the more mysterious or complicated it became to me rather than feeling like I was arriving at some clear cut definition of this is what empathy is, yeah. imagining or knowing the emotional state of another. I started to feel like, wow, actually, maybe the word itself is describing something impossible. If we can never actually experience, I can never experience precisely what you feel mm -hmm. or um, even know exactly what you feel. So it's almost like when we say the word empathy, we're talking about some sort of asymptote, like we're never actually going to get there, right. but we can get closer and closer and closer. Um, and so I, it became important to me in the essays in the collection to really challenge ideas about empathy rather than feeling like I was making some sort of unequivocal unilateral case for it Fair. or pretending to, uh, you know, assemble a really static definition of it. Um, and one of the things that happened as a result of writing this book that was in a way destabilizing my own ideas about empathy was that I lived a certain kind of destabilization of my own, um, I guess my sense of my own capacity for empathy or what mm -hmm. that might look like. Initially, we had no reason to believe the book would sell particularly well <laughs> or, you know, it was, it was just this little collection of essays that came out from this amazing amazing indie press in minneapolis called um gray wolf and they do a fantastic job they put out some of the best literature in america today poetry nonfiction, fiction um but you know essay collections were notoriously like poor sellers <laughs> like especially four or five years ago and so it was really kind of a shock when the collection 
kind of took off and hit the Times bestseller list and all this stuff. And But one of the things that was amazing about that was I got to hear from so many readers Absolutely. and got to hear the ways that this book or essays in the book had reached them in lives that I couldn't have imagined or sort of helped them make sense of an experience maybe that I knew nothing about mm. or had never lived. Um, I remember a woman writing to me about how one of the essays had helped her get through the death of her pet chicken. Oh Somebody God. else wrote about oh, um, wow. being his experience of homelessness and oh, reading wow. the book um, while he was inside that period of, sort of transience and instability. Um, one of the first readers I heard from was a man in his late 70s um, who said his life was nothing like mine, but he found that a lot of the emotional themes in the book resonated with him. So I feel like I was constantly getting this gift mm -hmm. of hearing the variety of situations that the book had landed in. But at the same time, I also realized I couldn't engage endlessly with each person who read the book, that right. in a way the book was what I had put into the world and they could give me these kind of offerings back. Mm -hmm. um, but that there was a I've never been particularly good at boundaries. And in a way, the book is about that, like my own trouble with boundaries. Um, but I started to have to figure out a way to develop some boundaries so that I wasn't sort of spending myself infinitely but, each right. each day and, and not even just presume that that's yeah. like what people would want. <laughs> but um, it did it did sort of force um, a kind of reckoning that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that's a that's actually a perfect spinoff to, you know, as of the past two or three years, there's, there's definitely been uh, quite a focus on campus climate yeah. um, and, and the role of the institution and sort of creating this collaborative and, and empathetic, I think, would, would be a fitting word for that environment for the student body, um, while also you know, maintaining uh, the balance of free speech and wanting to, to protect academic freedom and, and things of that nature. Uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on, you know, sort of what would be the ideal role the institution played in making sure that the student body felt uh, welcomed and, and sort of uh, safe, uh, using the word safe for a um, kind of a, a maintaining a, device, a diversity of thought, but also that you were making sure to, to really kind of go back to the roots of, of what college is for mm -hmm. um, and the mm -hmm. university environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would be interested to hear you guys speak more to your own um, experience right. of those mm -hmm. discussions about campus climate. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am not of the camp of people who sort of laments the current generation as thin-skinned <laughs> or, like, full of um, lamentation or whining or too easily provoked. I mean, I, I definitely believe in honoring and listening to um, accounts of the many, many ways that people can feel marginalized and unsafe and the deep, often institutional and societal roots of those, you know, real feelings mm -hmm. of marginalization and, and um, peril or silencing or invisibility. Um, so I, I'm, I'm basically all about free speech and all about, insofar as it's possible, infinite listening, right. you know, that um, and, you know, how that plays out logistically, I know, is often trickier, easier said than done. Um, but I mean, I, I believe in people being able to say the things they need to say, but I also believe in people being able to say, you know, 
I have a problem with that or that doesn't feel right or, you know, this is why I want the community to look a different way Mm -hmm. or I want it to feel a different way. Um, And I know I can speak a little bit to some of what has gone on on my campus at Columbia and some of the, I mean, there have been all kinds of, I think, worthwhile conversations. Some of them have been about um, sexual harassment Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I've been honestly quite surprised by at a liberal campus, how hard it can be to get faculty and sometimes administrators to take seriously claims of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were some statistics that were quite troubling to me about our institution. And I, you know, it felt really important to me that the faculty be looking at them. Um, And I was really surprised by the kinds of pushback or the sense of, oh, like, you know, students inflate all kinds of things or make a mountain out of a molehill. And, you know, so what do I believe the role of the institution is? It's partially to get upset by those kinds of things, take them seriously and figure out, well, okay, what are the ways that we can create even more channels by which students can be reporting these, by which we can raise faculty awareness about things that they might be doing and might not even know are troubling or upsetting. So I think that kind of communication between all the layers of an institution, students, faculty, Mm -hmm. administrators, is really kind of key in terms of making that progress possible. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned an interesting thing, which is from from the conversations that I've had, it there's always the assumption that the institution or from the administration point of view needs to be an objective body. But you you said they should the emotional response that's kind of necessary, yeah. especially when tackling issues like sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Since to you know, emotion isn't bad, but sometimes it's portrayed to be this yeah. this hindering um, yeah. block for for objectivity. But they're not, I guess, uh, as sort of exist in these silos as we think right, they do. Right, right. And I think sometimes the the best way to handle emotion isn't to pretend as if it's not there, but try to get it out in the open or right. create forums where it can be discussed or confessed more explicitly so that it's not something you're trying to kind of like shunt to the side as this shame or a stain on the ideal of objectivity, but actually making space for like, okay, what's the baggage that everybody in this room is bringing to this question or this right. subject? And maybe if we can get that baggage on the table, it'll be a little bit easier for us to understand where one another are coming from mm-hmm. or even what mm-hmm. our own perspectives might be influenced or shaped by. I mean, I constantly am discovering that what I think are just my opinions about something, (laughs) and I don't necessarily think they're supercharged by history. If I actually stop and think about it, I can see all sorts of ways that I carry all kinds of bias towards pretty much everything I Mm -hmm. touch. And again, it feels like the way through that bias isn't to try to suppress it. It's more to try to illuminate it and look at it clearly and think about, well, how, how, how is this shaping or informing Mm-hmm. my take on something absolutely now on a similar note you've spoken and written about uh the dynamic with gender in the classroom um and i was wondering what were could you share some experiences or some insight into how gender affects the classroom both as your as a student um yeah. and as your time as a professor yeah i am well, all of this is 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 just anecdotal um but i well you know i will say that i the first place where I ever really felt gender as a as a 
Well, not the first place, but the place where I felt it most forcefully was uh, in, in my doctoral program, which, you know, says to say nothing negative about that program, but just that I could really experience the ways that um, male voices in the classroom felt more, um, I guess, self-assured about their right to be heard and right. their right to take up space mm-hmm. and um, and that it seemed like female voices were m- more trying to figure out how to justify what they were saying or that I certainly felt myself sometimes a little bit paralyzed by the fear that I didn't have anything worth saying or that if I did say something, it was going to get kind of picked apart. And, right. um, and so I think that there are all kinds of ways, like at every level of the um, educational trajectory or structure where, you know, I think there are these ways in which gender socialization and what men and women as boys and girls Mm -hmm. are sort of how they're taught to consider their own voices and their own confidence about what they have to say that those make just even the act of speaking in class feel like a different threshold to overcome. And obviously it, you know, varies across individual people and, you know, but I think that there, there are real socialization effects and that it's important to think about how can, classrooms be structured to make everybody in that classroom feel comfortable right. speaking recognizing that not everybody's that we shouldn't treat it like something where everybody should have the same level of comfort and if they don't it's their own fault right. we need to recognize that there are all sorts of things that mm-hmm. might condition students bringing different levels of comfort to the classroom not just gender but things like educational background mm-hmm. class background racial background like that mm-hmm. all of these things just inflect what it means to move through the world like on every level in contemporary America and so to pretend like somehow an educational environment is just going to be this meritocracy Mm. where voices can rise as they please you know (laughs) it's like it's totally senseless so um, again I think it comes back to teachers but also institutions making teachers are asking teachers to be accountable to that as part of their role as educators and then teachers trying to figure out, okay, in this classroom, how can I create a space where people feel comfortable speaking and heard? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so unfortunately, uh, we are running short of time. So we'll, we'll transition to, into our last question, which is your personal definition of success. Um, and if you, if you were to ask to, to sort of define it, um, maybe based on anecdotal experience, what what advice would you give to students in, in defining success for themselves? Yeah. Um, one way in which I think about success is getting to be in conversation with people I respect and who inspire me. And in my life as a writer, that means... Um, many things. It means knowing and talking to other writers who I love, reading their work, um, having my work read and often improved by their (laughs) reading. It also means getting to meet people through my life as a writer who might not be writers themselves. They might be readers. They might be educators. They might be medical students. They might be therapists. They might be clients at an outpatient mental health facility. They might be all kinds of things, but getting to commune or be in conversation with them because, um, my writing has brought me into these contexts that I couldn't have imagined. And it also really involves conversations with students and getting to um, teach at an institution I respect and work with students I adore. Um, so getting to be 
inside meaningful conversations as part of my professional life definitely feels like this kind of daily uh, repayment that I feel really <laughs> grateful for. Incredible. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, but that, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Uh, thank you, Leslie, again for joining us. Um, and to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, great. Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, that, that was, was really great. fun. Yeah, yeah this was great.